0: All right, nice to see everybody this morning. We'll give just another minute for folks coming in, but we, we are in Jonah 3 today, moving along. And um, next, so I'll, I'll just give just a couple, uh, couple seconds for a few more ladies to come in. Um, as I said, I think last week, after we get done with Jonah, it's my intention to work on the book of James in view of Matthew. And so that'll be kind of fun to kind of go back and forth from Matthew to to James and see the connections there and just how influenced, uh, perhaps, James was the first book of the New Testament. So um, it'll be interesting to see kind of like how that all worked out. Of course, James knew... <clears throat> knew the Gospels, right? He, he knew the, th- the things that Jesus said and did. And so, you know, Jesus, inf- of course, right, influenced him immensely, uh, as well as the Holy Spirit in the writing of James. But um, it's, you know, he was thinking a lot about the things Jesus did and said as he wrote James. So that'll be kind of fun. Um, as we begin today, uh, just a note, if you haven't gotten an email yet, You will that next Friday we will not have class my apologies but my presence is required in the Board of Regents meeting (laughs) on Friday and uh, Friday of next week so um, so we will not have class but then we will resume the following Friday so just take note of that Um, did was an email already sent out to you no okay so an email will be sent out to all the ladies about the cancellation of class next Friday. Okay, so with that, let's, let's get back into Jonah chapter 3. And we left off somewhere about verse 6. So let's look at that again. So Jonah chapter 3, starting at verse 6. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, And he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster That he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it so that ends the chapter Um, so when we look at this then uh, he he humbled himself and this is the point Um, you know we see this often in the scriptures there's i mentioned it last week about the word repent to turn around, to have a change of mind. And there are other places, so like if we look at First 1 Kings 19.13, we will see Elijah. So let's take a look here. First Kings 19. First 1 Kings 19.13, where it says... Well and let's let's back up to verse eleven. So first Kings nineteen, verse eleven. Then he said, the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a still small voice. So it was, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. So there's this sense of covering and repentance and humbleness. And, you know, not looking at the face of the Lord. But, and he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, God of hosts, Because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. So you see, he's distressed. He has this worry. He's alone. He's the only one, he thinks. And then the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria, And you shall anoint Yehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Yehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Yehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him." And then in verse 19, So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the twelfth. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what, what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him, took a yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. So you can see this humbling throughout this, of you know feeling alone, being worried, and yet the Lord shows he's not alone, and then blesses. There's a sacrifice, and then they go forward. Um, in the, in the Septuagint, so back to Jonah, and so you see this often where there's this distress because of sin, and the distress comes out of fear of God's judgment. And that's one of the things that's important to remember, that God is merciful, but He doesn't, right? Like, he, He's not fickle. So, you know, He means what He says. That's the hard word, Right? so you know if he says he who sins shall die that's a fearful thing because he's not fickle something has to happen and so a person in view of their sin then repents and we see this with the king of nineveh he repents sackcloth ashes and then it's, so it literally says in the Greek in verse 7 in the Septuagint that the king preached. But then with repentance, the Lord is always merciful, right? And so when we think about that, we think about the ending words of this chapter where it says in verse 10, God saw their works, That they turned from their evil way and god relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it so the lord is merciful when there's repentance and faith right so now take a look at joel chapter 2. so that'd be a couple books before jonah so if you're at jonah just Troll back. There's, there's Obadiah. There's Amos, and then for Amos is Joel. So in Joel chapter two, let's start at. Boy, the you know all of it's good. The first verse: Blow the trumpet in Zion, in Zion, and sound an, an alarm in all my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. But then you get to chap- or verse 12 of Joel chapter 2. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So then there's the mercy side. And that's so important. So that's what we see here in Jonah chapter three. You you see the mercy and the loving kindness of the Lord. And it's exactly what Jonah knows but doesn't want to tell. If you just, so back to Jonah if you look, jump ahead to verse 2, well, so you look at verses 1 and 2, I guess. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. Why? Because the Lord wasn't going to do what he originally was going to do to Nineveh. Yes, Kathy?
1: I just wanted to ask, is it it important that the uh, ground It was like a groundswell of repentance that that Jonah went to just the people first, and was going across the whole city. And then it reaches the ears of the king. Instead of going to the king and trying to preach this, and then the king makes a decree and says, "Now everybody's got to do it." Is it is that important that it is kind of like a groundswell of repentance or
0: not? The uh I do think so. Uh, in this case, the um, the sin of the, 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 the land was so great that um, it was all over, right? Um, it was in, deeply embedded into the lives of the people in that nation. And so it was important that they... And there is a verse you as you were talking you made me think about the fact that you know the whole nation is doing this there is a verse it's i want to say that it is in leviticus and i am not sure that i'm going to find it right now, but it literally says, the Lord says that because, he's talking to the people of God and he says, because you will not listen to me and follow my ways and because you've defiled the land, I am going to remove you from the land and then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths. So, you know, God and the Sabbath and, you know, the, spirit, the rest, entering the rest. If a nation or a people will not enter the Sabbath rest, which this is a spiritual thing, right? If they will not enter the, the Sabbath rest, then he will remove them from the land, and then the land, even if it lays desolate, will enjoy the Sabbaths. One way or another, the Sabbath will be, and right now I can't, I'm having one of those moments where I'm like, what? where was that? I want to say it was somewhere in the, in the realm of the end of, of Leviticus, but I'm not going to find it right now. But So there is some of that, right? Like, it's gotten to the point with Nineveh where the Lord is going to destroy them unless they repent. The Sabbath will be observed one way or another. And so, as a nation, they all, it's this, like you said, this groundswell. And so the Lord sees that this is good. And so then he's merciful. Yes? I think it's Leviticus 26, uh, maybe beginning at verse 14. Yeah, I think it is. Okay. Yeah, it's getting to that, but then there is another, there is another verse, 23.3, that is close, that is close, but there's still like one more, (laughs) yeah, and I must not have, you know, I try to underline things so I remember and I don't see it, but it is somewhere right in there. Yeah, it's, it's somewhere close by. And at any rate, if you find it, oh, here it is. It is Leviticus 26, verse 34. Yeah. And actually, you can back up. Yeah, like if you start at verse 27, so Leviticus twenty-six, twenty-seven, you know, he's talking about if you do not obey me, if you walk contrary to me, I will walk contrary to you in fury. Um, and then he says, I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols. But then you get down to like verse 32, 1 and 32 and 33. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I will bring the land to desolation and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities laid waste. Then, and this is the kicker, then the land shall enjoy its sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land then the land shall rest and enjoy its sabbaths isn't that something so the lord the creator of heaven and earth this is right that's his land and so he's saying worship me or I will remove you and your idols, and then creation will worship me without you. I mean, that's powerful, right? And so, you know, you think about just how merciful... To me, that heightens the mercy of the Lord, that He doesn't need us for the land to observe Him and His creation, but in His mercy and good pleasure, He wants us to be a part of it. He wants to draw us in. Yes. You know, were the Ninevites enemies of, of God's people, I and mean, were they warriors? They were a strong army. The Ninevites were a strong army.
1: And, and so
0: maybe that's why
1: Jonah was so angry
0: with them. Yes. Um. Yes. They
1: were the Assyrians.
0: Yeah. So they were the
1: Assyrians were the most feared people.
0: Yes. They were the most feared people and they always you know, so you had kind of the Assyrians off to the east, the northeast, I believe, and they would always try to come in and destroy the people of Israel. So it was kind of one of those things where it's like those people hate us, you know, they want to destroy us. So the
1: interesting thing is, it's
0: technically the area where Abram came from. Yeah, that is a good point. Yeah, I didn't think about that. But, yeah, Ur, the land of Ur. That, yeah, that is so interesting. And so, <laughs> that's pretty quick reflexes. <laughs> but, so, yeah, they... They did not like the Israelites. They wanted, always wanted to destroy them. And so there were no good feelings. Yeah. So the fact that, yeah, go ahead.
1: Just reading this, you know, it's just a reminder to um, before Jesus that, you know, they had to bow um, down and um, basically change their ways in order for God not to destroy them. Um, you know, sometimes it's frustrating when and it feels like Jesus is telling people things like, you don't have to do these type of traditions that you did before. Like you don't have to be avoiding these views or having these practices, and um, you know don't worry about that. So it's you're like, gosh, why aren't people listening? Like he's telling them they don't need to. But when you read mm-hmm. these over and over in the Old Testament, you realize how much they were. Like God had taught them that they needed to do these things. Yeah. To be able to get his mercy, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, I mean, he showed mercy sometimes even when they weren't
0: um, right,
1: pious, but there's this consequence to goodness or badness, mm-hmm. and so it just, it's a good reminder to go back here when in the New Testament it's frustrating sometimes to say, why aren't people catching on to this? Yeah. But like here they've been reading this for so long and living this and have these traditions that you'd be like, I'm so afraid to let that go because I know
0: what could happen? Yes,
1: exactly. So yeah. 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 be just such a huge
0: change. Yeah. And I feel like even today, like even knowing this,
1: like you think about I have consequences for my actions, good or bad, and so it's hard to accept that my sins are forgiven in advance. Um,
0: yes. Yes. You know, it's, it's like in uh, Revelation chapter 2 where... Uh, Jesus writes to the the seven churches in Asia Minor and um, I was I'm preaching next week for to the seminarians for a communion service and my text is Revelation 2 12 to 17 which is the letter to the church of Pergamum and it's they're a, comp, they're a compromising church and how you know they they were bartering with the Lord you know in a way because it was such a heavily Roman provincial city and so they wanted to have the Lord but then they were straying and falling into all these idle practices and you're like how do they not right there's all this stuff before right all the things that have happened before and to think about that and uh it is a good reminder to live a life of repentance and to realize that, um, like you said, there is consequence to sin. But then on the other hand, the Lord is abundantly merciful. And so just go to his mercy and rest in his mercy. And, and that is, and it, you can read that Revelation 2, 12 to 17. It's beautiful because on the one hand, he talks about, you know, he is going to come with a two-edged sword and he's going to render judgment but then he says, but to those, but to those who I have redeemed, um, they, will, they will get to eat my, my hidden manna and they will be given a white stone that has a name on it that nobody else will know. Well, the white stone in that Roman context, if you were given a white stone in court, then that was, you were acquitted. So, I mean, it's beautiful how the Lord says, be careful because I will come with a two-edged sword, but if you repent, you get the hidden manna and you get the acquittal stone and you will know the the name that nobody else knows. You know, so mercy abounds. And that's, that's what's so important. And that's what Jonah's struggling with, right? He knows that the Lord's mercy pervades. Yes, judgment, there is judgment for a life of unrepentance, but the mercy is so widespread. He wants to forgive. He wants to render us forgiven and innocent and... He lets us go.
1: So why do you think the Ninevites then all of a sudden because of Jonah became repentant? Because I think like what you said, that was an excellent point. If the king would have just declared it, it wouldn't be a true repentance. But the people's hearts had to fill up with it. Yeah. Then it rose to the king. But was that just the spirits working? Because it could have been an easy to persuade.
0: Yeah. It is ever said to before. Perhaps. And seem like he's before the greatest for <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. he, he not really want them to, to get better. So it's not like he's his best work at
0: them. Yeah. So that's probably just how the
1: spirit works, right? Because it says He's like the wind. know We don't know where he comes and goes, but we have to have faith in that, right? Right. And maybe it just goes back to the word and the power
0: of the word. Well, that is true.
1: Once Jonah turned around and had his faith, put his faith really into it. Yeah. Put faith really into it.
0: Yep. yep. Right. Yeah, it is, it is amazing. And, you know, this, all of this kind of goes back, like the, what we read in Joel, you know, what we're seeing in Jonah goes ultimately back to uh, Exodus 34, verse 6, which I can just read to you, where it says, And the Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So there's that two sides, right? There is the judgment, there is the visiting of iniquity, but Listen to all that mercy language. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You know, that's our Lord. And then it comes up again uh, in Exodus 32, verses 11 to 14. So... You know, when you think about this, this language in, in Jonah chapter 3, who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? And sure enough, that's what he does. He relents. And that's the Lord we have. You know, we live in grace and... Um, you know, there's there's these different. You know, the Lutherans talked about um, you know the states of salvation history. The four states of salvation history. And the first one was a state of innocence that was before the fall. And then, the second one is like the state of misery. And then the third one is the state of grace. And then the fourth state is the state of glory. And this is how, so Martin Chemnitz. So you had Martin Luther. And he, you know, we all know what Luther did. And then there was the second Martin who is less well-known, but very important. In fact, um, a Roman Catholic cardinal, Cardinal Cayetan said, that if the second Martin had not come, the first Martin would not have remained standing. So you had Martin Luther, and then you had Martin Chemnitz. And Martin Chemnitz talks about this, the, the four states or four stages of salvation history. And so he says just this, you have the state of innocence before the fall, Adam and Eve are in the garden, life is good, but then they fall into sin, original sin, And then all of creation enters the state of misery. So everyone born into this world is born into the state of misery. And all the world remains in the state of misery unless they enter through the waters of holy baptism and they enter the church And when they enter the waters of holy baptism, and hence the church, then they enter the state of grace. And the Christian, living out his or her baptism, rests in the state of grace all the days of our earthly journey. And that's very important to remember that we are always in the state of grace. And that's why we go to the Eucharist and we listen to the scriptures because we have our sins, we have our struggles, we have our temptations, and the Lord continues to bathe us with his grace through the word and the sacraments. So that's where we live. When we die, we enter the state of glory. Now, what's important about this distinction is often in Protestant circles, so, you know, you ha- right, nobody ever knows what to do with the Lutherans, right? Remember at the, t- the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholics are like, those crazy Lutherans are just all a bunch of Protestants, right? And the Protestants, the Reformed, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, you know, they're looking at the Lutherans and going, they didn't go far enough. They're really Catholic. We got to go further. You know, and so you have these radical reformations. You know, John Calvin wanted very little to do with the things of Rome. And so he wanted to keep moving along. Nothing to see here. Let's keep moving along. And so here's the, you know, here are the Lutherans caught in the middle. Well, the Protestants, the radical Protestants, almost by de facto, by their theology... Look at it as once you go, once you make your decision. So okay, so maybe you're in the state of misery, and then in in the radical Protestant world, you make a decision for Jesus, and then you jump to glory. Right? Sin is gone. Living perfect, good life. Don't make mistakes. You believe everything correctly, and so then everything. You know, I always just I. Stacy tells me I'm not funny, so my jokes are not typically very funny. But, you know, it's, I always say um, the state, you know, the theology of glory is like playing a country song backwards. Have you ever heard that? You get your car back, you get your, your truck back, you get your dog back, you know, you get your wife back, you know. And so, you know, the theology of glory is if you believe right, your kids will be great. Your job will be great, right? Everybody's great. Life is good. You'll be prosperous. And so, you know, often the decision theology jumps to glory. But we don't get the state of glory until this body dies, right? And we take on the new body in paradise. Then we enter the state of glory. Now, the the tricky thing, though, then, for those who live their entire earthly sojourn in the state of misery, then go to another state, which is the state of damnation. So this is just a very Lutheran way of talking about it from the time of the Reformation. And so you see a little of this in Jonah, in Joel, you know, in that Leviticus 26 passage and how the Lord, you know, yes, we born physically into this world and we enter the state of misery, but the Lord wants to draw us into the state of grace. And so we have the cross, we have our Savior's suffering, death, and resurrection. He institutes baptism the Eucharist, and here we go. And so here we rest in his grace and in his goodness. And his grace is pervasive and it permeates our lives. And he wants to forgive. He wants to bless. He wants us in paradise. So it's very important to to keep that perspective when we think about all this harsh language about judgment and so forth. So the king, if you think about this, that, that we may not perish at the end of verse 9. So this actually takes us back to the same hope as the sailors. Look at, uh, look at Jonah 1 verse 6 again. So this is, this is one of the things that I never stop thinking about in terms of the book of Jonah, is just how merciful the Lord is in that his mercy pervades out and away from Israel and into the, the Gentile nations. So back to Jonah 1 verse 6, So the captain came to Jonah and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. Same thing. Same thing is is in chapter 3, verse 9. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Same thing. Yeah.
1: Do you think that the, um, the nation of Nineveh and perhaps even these um, sailors in the boat were beneficiaries of a lesson that God was trying to teach to Jonah? You know, like he can move mountains, right, to to do things for you. Like, or is is Jonah just a witness to this, and and we're seeing it through his eyes, or is it? God is basically kind of almost like moving
0: out to the I do think that it's a little bit of God is trying to help Jonah see things in a, you know in a particular light because he is an Israelite. As we see from his prayer in chapter two, it's very temple focused. And you know, he understands the ways of his people very well. And To see just how far God's mercy extends is really important for Jonah. And perhaps it's him being a prophet, knowing that the Savior is going to come, maybe that's also helping him to see the broader perspective of the Savior's work out ahead of him and you can
1: see how
0: it's kind of like in acts you know like how I mean, the like, disciples yeah yeah it's it's very similar to that how you can see like the outline of the book of acts you know starts with jerusalem then judea samaria and then out to all the nations so you see this similar thing where it starts in jerusalem but then goes out and the same thing with jesus right he starts in close but then he goes out and so there's just this continual pattern of God's mercy he wants to save all and it's good for Jonah um and you know it makes me think too of the book of Isaiah um you know the book of Isaiah is known as the gospel of the Old Testament And there's a lot of language in there that speaks to God's love coming to all the nations. So so the end of our prayer, you know, you think about our own lives, the end of our prayer and and our repentance is that we may not die but live also, right? Psalm 116. And God does command his beloved to choose life. So you can, you can look later at Deuteronomy 30, 19 and following and Ezekiel 18, 31 and 32. And God re- ch- turns from the evil that he speaks. So um, Lamin- go to Lamentations. This is such a beautiful text and I am I often use this when I visit people that have uh, various illnesses. Lamentations chapter 3, and we're looking at verse 23 and following. Okay, so this is Lamentations 3, starting at verse 22. So this this speaks of the extent of the Lord's mercy. So Lamentations 3.22 Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great Great is your faithfulness, the Lord's faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. There is a lot there. Now, if you look at Lamentations is poetically written, so Hebrew poetry, and so You know, you have this numbering of the verses in a poetic fashion. What is striking to me, though, is you have five chapters. So, you know, if you think about it in terms of one, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, chapter five, in sort of what we call a chiasm, a chiastic structure. And, you know, a chiastic structure, the middle is the point, right? This is true with the Lord's Prayer. Prayer. Remember when we did the Lord's Prayer and you have that chiastic structure and you had that petition, give us this day our daily bread is the middle. Well, in chapter one, chapter two, chapter four and chapter five, There are 22 verses per chapter. And they're hard chapters. They're hard chapters to read. A lot of lamentation, a lot of talk about things aren't looking good. (laughs) Chapter 3, how many verses is chapter 3? 66? 66? So 22 times 3, right? Trinitarian number. And so it's three times as long. And it's the chapter in the middle of the book. And it speaks of mercy. And it begins at verse 22. Where the others leave off, the mercy begins. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. And so in the middle of all this woe, is mercy and you know this is good for us to remember about our lives that in the midst of all the things that are going on in the world the dangers the temptations the trouble the sin the worry in verse 22 and following comes mercy words of mercy words of God relenting from judgment. And I verses twenty-five and twenty-six. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Then in verse 27, it is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Okay, so all of us, it is good for us to bear the yoke in our youth. What does that mean? What? What's that? Screw up when you're young, that's right, yeah. Well, we learn, we learn well when we're young and if you go th- right? So think about it like this. If your life is super easy for most of your life and then all of a sudden you get to old age and then everything starts crashing down, what's gonna happen? Yeah, you're going to lose your faith. You're going to lose hope. You're going to be like, what in the world happened to me? I had all this life that was great. And now everything's falling apart. And a lot of people lose heart. Yeah. It feels like
1: that's a good segue into James. It is. Just perseverance
0: that you learn through carrying the
1: yoke. Yes. And the blessing of getting that early
0: Yep. instead of late. It it shapes your character when you're young, right? Like, it's true, right? Um, Psychologists talk about this all the time, about the formative years, right? And how much we learn in our formative years and it carries along, right, all through our lives. And um, in the same way, learning and bearing crosses and trouble when we're young does shape our character and so then as we grow as we get older we become the lord is really strengthening us he is it's it's a it's a way of god caring for us if we face struggles in our in our younger years so don't don't look at it like, oh gosh, you know, I was such a, you know, such a screw up when I was a kid and, 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 and all this stuff. But the Lord used it to shape you to who you are today. And then he uses you to help other people. Yes.
1: Um, that's really encouraging
0: to hear, especially as I'm parenting. Are <laughs> um, you okay for my child? Um, <laughs> but does that mean that we ought to be looking for suffering or yeah so we never really want to look for suffering you know we um we right we it'll find us right so like luther when he talks about vocation he says in your vocations you never get to pick your crosses god picks them for you where you are where he plants you so we don't go looking for crosses and trials and trouble we do want peaceful days i pray for peaceful days lord give me peaceful days help me to right and but then he will do what is good for me he will do what's good for you Uh, some things may be hard and difficult but He will see you through it. And when He gets you through it, you'll be different. You'll be different in a good way.
1: But does stress the importance of um, teaching your children in the way of the Lord? Because if you're going through that kind of distress or suffering without any of this framework to understand what God's offering you, it probably takes you a little bit longer to
0: come around to understanding it. Mm-hmm. I would think that in small stressors and things like that if, if you have that word as a guide it helps you take more meaning out of it sooner rather than later yes uh, because if you have no context for that it's hard to look to see what God is teaching
1: you if you don't even have that framework so it's like giving that to your children is so helpful for them early to have that
0: context it is context is key right like it's hard to understand the cross of Christ apart from our own struggles right like a person that doesn't see or feel their sin it's hard for them to see the need for Jesus suffering and dying on the cross right if I feel like I'm a good person and I do all things right and you know I'm great for society and life is good and then I look at you know, talking about the cross of Christ and for the sins of the world. And I'm like, right? Then you're like, what's going on? What? That seems a little silly that he had to do that. I'm a good person. But the context is yeah, you see it. Yeah.
1: The uh, verse in
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, for the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. Lamentations 3:31 and following. He does, he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men.
1: But I mean, that, that, you know, it doesn't, it's not from his heart that.
0: To do that right right yeah yeah it's an interesting thing isn't it yeah
1: i was just gonna say I mean, jeremiah was sort of a tortured sort of person i find very human his reaction to things. yes of course, by the end of this very chapter he's lamenting the things that he suffered that their, his people is suffering and it finally ends with take back um, Pay them back what they deserve,
0: O Lord, for what their hands have done, Put a veil over their hearts, and may your curse be on them. It's very much kind of what John was (laughs) wishing. Was that at the end of chapter 3? Yeah. Yeah, see, isn't that the human, yeah, there's the struggle, right? Repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. Give them a veiled heart. Your curse be upon them in your anger. Pursue and destroy them. From under the heavens of the Lord, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you do see that human side sometimes. But, you know, then you get to, you know, Paul's words um, to the Corinthians when he talks about uh, 2 Corinthians 1, our struggles. The So this gets back to that bearing the yoke in your youth, uh, you know, learning much. And he says in 2 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 3, I'm sure you know these words, but he talks about how God comforts us in our tribulation so that we're able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So through our own struggles like you said, we then are able to help our children and we're able to help our friends and our sisters in Christ. And so the Lord takes those things that we, that we struggle with and then we're able to comfort other people. Thanks.
1: Which is kind of like Jonah, like, he's making his appeal to a larger audience by
0: appealing to Jonah. And him. Yeah, that's a good point. She's referencing 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Troubles come. Understand more. I mean, even like Job, with everything he went through, if he didn't have that personal relationship with Christ, he would have faltered. Right. He would have fallen astray. Yep. And it's so sad when kids fall away, and I know even different pastors' kids have mm-hmm. fallen away. Yeah. Maybe they the scriptures weren't grounded enough, right? so that when they saw all the troubles and challenges that their parents went through. Uh-huh. Instead of it strengthening them, it destroyed
0: them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Right. A life of prayer and listening to the Scriptures. Then like Revelations 2, you know, the Lord says to the, the church at Pergamum, you know, I will give you the, the hidden manna you know, we need the Eucharist, and the Lord will sustain us, and that's the beautiful thing. I mean, that's this is part of what I think is so remarkable about the book of Jonah, is just the far-reaching mercy of the Lord, and so it is really important for us to pray. You know, Jesus says, pray for your enemies, right? Um, Those who abuse you and misuse you and do all kind of evil, you know, pray for them. Um, Because the Lord hears your prayers. So, you know, when you're concerned about the world and what's going on, say your prayers. Pray for all the things that are on your mind and in your heart. So that leads us to chapter four, and I uh, further into chapter four, we have just a couple minutes. Uh, let's look at verse one. So in Jonah chapter four, verse one, if I can get there, it says, "But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry." So he's still struggling with this. So. The remainder of the book now, chapter 4, deals with how the Lord handles Jonah's grieving. So that's what's interesting about this. He was angry, literally burning up. And, you know, we have other verses throughout the Old Testament that, that reference to this, so... Numbers 11 verse 1 as one example. Now when the people complained it displeased the Lord for the Lord heard it and his anger was aroused so the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses and when Moses prayed to the Lord the fire was quenched. So there's Numbers 11.1 1. there's Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. But then there's Isaiah, let's go to, let me look at Isaiah 64, verse 5 here for a second. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue, and we need to be saved. <laughs> that whole chapter is really interesting. It's talking about that the nations will tremble at your pre- at the Lord's presence. And then Lamentations 5:22, but in Jonah's complaint, he knows the Lord is holy and he also knows the Lord is merciful. And so you have this two-sided aspect that keeps going back and forth. There's mercy and judgment, or justice. And Moses would often get the point when the people of Israel rebelled, like in in Numbers chapter 14. And so maybe that's where we'll stop. It's it's time to break. So what we're going to do then is we're going to get into just what is going on with Jonah and how it relates to the, book of, the books of Moses, because there's a definite connection to what he's used to with the Feast of Tabernacles and booths and all this other stuff. So we'll stop there. So just as a reminder, we will not meet next Friday, my apologies, but then we'll pick it up in two weeks, okay? All right, so let's close with the Collect and then the Benediction. O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace.